everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show for our first members-only stream. I'm Jen Pan, here with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's new? I don't usually see you on Tuesday. I know. It's it's Tuesday. That's what's new. Um, it's Tuesday. That's what's new. Um, just uh, very quickly for anybody who is out there watching, um, of course, we have a very small crew tonight. Uh, we will be having Walter Ben Michaels and Adolf Reed coming on. Uh, we also have, uh, Paul, do you want to tell us about our other uh, surprise guest uh, who, who's coming on before Adolf and Walter? Yeah, we have um, Madison Serwinski, who does a lot of work around the a Green New Deal for nuclear power. I know that was kind of a controversial topic we've covered, so we, of course, are going to keep covering it. Um, so people definitely don't want to miss that interview. It'll be very informative. So before we get to our guests, I want to quickly touch on what is uh, developing as a really serious homelessness crisis here in the U.S. As lots of you probably know, over the weekend, the national eviction moratorium expired. Uh, Democrat, this seemed to completely de- blindside Democrats. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, not just the White House and the Biden administration, but congressional Democrats, even the squad, the so-called squad, although... Uh, Although they have, uh, you know, uh, since talked about how we really need to uh, reinstate the eviction moratorium, um, they, Cory Bush and AOC and others, I believe, have been protesting and sleeping on the steps of uh, Congress in order to get their message across. Even they seem to be like, oh, we, we didn't really know this was coming, right? So that in and of itself is a problem, first and foremost. But I think what is interesting about um, about kind of this hand-wringing among the Democrats now, acting like they're blindsided, uh, trying to pass the buck to each other, is that um, it's not actually the case that none of them can do any can do nothing to stop the eviction moratorium, right? Uh, so Matt Brunig actually has a pretty good piece that's out today in People's Policy Project. Matt, of course, friend of the show um, and our occasional welfare correspondent. Uh, He's got an article titled, The Biden Administration Can Extend the Eviction Moratorium. And he kind of goes into, um, so the Biden administration's, uh, uh, I guess, uh, rationale for for why their hands are tied in in stopping this this, uh, eviction moratorium, or like why they can't extend the the eviction moratorium is that the Supreme Court could basically reverse a prior ruling that uh, protects the eviction moratorium. And Matt points out that even if they were to do that, uh, it would take months for them to actually be able to reverse that ruling, during which time the eviction moratorium would still, uh, you know, be protecting renters. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't really hold up. The congressional Democrats, I, I mean... Democrats have a majority in the House and the Senate. I, you know, they obviously are afraid of the filibuster. Uh, they're not, the leadership isn't sure whether they have enough Democrats to actually continue the eviction moratorium. Uh, but again, it just sort of feels like excuses, right? Uh, and uh, I, I, I want to quickly read a quote from CNN here. Um, so recently, a reporter wrote, White House officials made clear that even after renewed examination, the president's authority to continue banning evictions was limited. Instead, the White House said it was working to prevent a major housing crisis by calling on states to accelerate rental assistant payments and pass their own laws banning eviction. So the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, I think even 
What's even more interesting than any of the kind of like procedural minutia about whether they can or cannot uh, reinstate or keep the eviction moratorium, um, I think that this is an example of what Jacob Hacker has called risk shift. And our uh, dear co-host Ariella Thornhill has talked about this on a prior show, but the concept of risk shift is basically that the federal government outsources its obligation to provide economic security to its citizens out uh, elsewhere. So uh, traditionally, the federal government has outsourced uh, this obligation to employers. The classic example is, of course, healthcare. We don't have a national single payer system. Uh, what we have instead is employer sponsored healthcare. So the responsibility for providing healthcare, of course, is now with the employer. Now, as we know, that doesn't really mean much in this country. Um, you know, under a certain threshold, employers don't actually have to provide health care. Uh, and the ones that do often provide, you know, pr honestly, pretty shitty plans where employees have to pony up a contribution. They're often high deductible plans. Um, it, it still really takes it, it's a lot of money that uh, people have to pay out of pocket to have health care through their employer. Uh, and then the next kind of risk shift is when the employer then offsets the risk onto the employees. So that's, you know, the process I'm talking about where, um, where of course, you know, they make employees responsible for uh, choosing between different bad healthcare plans and, of course, paying a contribution. So that's what Jacob, Jacob Hacker calls risk shift. And I think that we're actually seeing something really similar happening with the eviction crisis that's looming. So the federal government is now saying, well, we our hands are tied. We can't do anything. And they're calling on states and local governments to find solutions. Uh, I saw a segment on CNN where... Um, the Biden administration had even called on landlords to, I think they said, they said something like, we're challenging landlords to not evict anybody for 30 days, uh, which is very bleakly hilarious and uh, sounds like, uh, you know, uh, like internet meme or something. So, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that this concept of risk shift, uh, as it's playing out now, is the federal government, as I said, shifting risk and responsibility to state and local governments who uh, we already know have been fumbling the housing housing issues, the housing crisis. Uh, lots of major cities are having you know huge spikes in homelessness after the pandemic, during and after the pandemic, and. Um, I think what is, you know, even more insidious is that you can see municipal governments slowly but surely shifting the risk and responsibility onto citizens themselves, right? So for, you know, the duration of the pandemic, we saw a lot of homeless encampments spring up in major cities. Um, obviously, you know, especially once uh, hotels that had been converted into public housing, uh, temporary public housing, uh, you know, were s sort of shut down and, and the hotel owners were allowed to go back to their old business model of, you know, renting rooms for profit. Um, lots of people who had once been staying in those hotels are now finding themselves back on the street. And, you know, their only option is to go to a crowded shelter where they won't have any privacy, where they might be at risk for COVID 
or of course setting up shop in tents. So that's what's happening in cities like LA, Austin, I've talked about um, when I guest hosted weekends a couple months ago, uh, Portland is having a problem, New York City is having a problem, San Francisco, uh, just lots of metropolitan cities are now faced with these sprawling homeless encampments. Um, and unsurprisingly, that has created a lot of tension among you know people who live in those cities who I think rightly um, don't, I suppose, don't really, you know, don't like the sight of these camps, think that they're dangerous, uh, and, you know, are the ones in lieu of the cities and states and federal government actually doing anything, are basically forced to confront these homeless camps and, you know, work it out among themselves how they feel about it, right? So this was something that I talked about, again, when I was on weekends. Um, I... I think that this just creates a problem where you basically pit, you know, people who have homes uh, in a city against homeless residents, right? And I think that I, I guess I'll just, I want to throw it over to Paul pretty soon um, because I think I've been rambling for a little bit. But I do want to say that um, I think where the left often makes a mistake actually is that, is by leaning into this risk shift, Right. Um, instead of saying, hey, where is the government? Where is the municipal government? Where is the state government? Where is the federal government? All of these people like had an opportunity to act to provide housing for these people. Instead, we get a lot of people on the left who um, I think this is very well intentioned, you know, but really want to destigmatize the people who are living in these camps. And I totally get it. It is through no fault of their own that they have lost their housing. We know what we know what leads people to homelessness. Um, a myriad of problems, including intergenerational poverty, lack of social safety net in the U.S. It is not their fault at all. And I do agree that there is a lot of stigma toward homeless people. Uh, a lot of wealthy people, especially a lot of wealthy people, you know, don't want to see those homeless encampments um, in their neighborhoods or around their neighborhoods. But that said, I think that, again, uh, as I pointed out, you know, in a prior show, um, uh, it, it, it really does seem like when the left and liberals and progressives respond to this problem, uh, by saying, you know, things like, well, we shouldn't stigmatize the homeless. Um, at worst, I've seen kind of arguments like, well, like, we shouldn't even call them homeless. Like, why don't we call them urban campers or, you know, some other word that doesn't have quite, uh, you know, politically loaded uh, connotation or sting. Um, I see where that's coming from. But I, I think that that accepts the narrative that it's now the problem of the people to like make peace with these homeless camps. But but we shouldn't normalize homeless camps because like that is no way for people to live. They should have housing. Uh, and so I'm going to turn it over to Paul now because like I said, I've been rambling a little bit and I have a few more comments, but sorry, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first, let me just say, I mean, what a real pathetic lack of ability to use power. I mean, both right. by the president and Congress. And it's like, I mean, just like Matt said, I mean, you know, Biden could come out and extend it and, you know, say, I dare you to overturn this right now. I dare you to do that, you know, and make it a power struggle. And even if you lose, like, at least if you've bought a few more months of time, good. If you put up a fight, if you rally the base around that, you know, I think we know the Supreme Court is very undemocratic institution, but okay, if they, you know, make an undemocratic move, like if you at least excite your base around what you did, you know, I think that would be worth it. Mm -hmm. um, so really, it's just pathetic. And I think, you know, you made the point, 
they didn't want to call a roll call vote because um, they know that some of their Democrats would not vote for it, which mm-hmm. is just another thing about the contradictions of the Democratic Party. But yeah, I think you make a good point about how we should frame this. You know, we should try to stay laser focused on the need for robust public housing. And, you know, mm-hmm. I love Megan Day, a, a very um, frequent Jacobin contributor, writes a lot of great articles about, you know, that we can have beautiful public housing. There's actually a lot of examples around the world of public housing being done in a way that's not stigmatized. And that's actually looks better than a lot of the housing we have in the United States, even if you're not using public housing. So I think Mm -hmm. that should kind of be the focus of how we frame this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, the left has a really tough fight, right? I mean, we basically like actual leftists, I'm not even talking about Democrats here. Like we have so little uh, political power to actually, um, you know, force lawmakers to do anything, right? So it's easy, of course, to say like, oh, well, we should guarantee housing for all. And of course, I believe that. Um, what we could actually do is another story altogether. So I think what that translates to sometimes is, you know, um, I talked about this uh, when I talked about Austin's uh, homeless camping ban. Like, we're put in an awful position of defending things like homeless encampments, you know? Right. I mean, because it yeah. is cruel. It's unbelievably cruel to, you know, police and, uh, uh, you know, um, I guess, punish people for being homeless. Um, and we should destigmatize, obviously, the people themselves. Right. Uh, so I just think that we're in a really tough position. But I do want to reiterate again, you know, I, I, I suppose I, again, I just, I just, don't want us to lean into, you know, this risk shift. And, you know, we, I know this was like a little controversial, but we've made some critical comments about kind of anarchist ideas like mutual aid on the show before, specifically because I think that kind of politics accepts that the state isn't going to be here. And instead of fighting to make public goods and a state that is responsive and available to everybody, it's kind of saying like, okay, well, we're going to do it. We're going to do it all ourselves. Um, And I just think that's the wrong road to go down. Yeah. And and maybe I'll just end this point by throwing out there, you know, one of the most inspiring things the the Labour Party government in the UK did after World War II was not just the NHS. I think that's the most high profile thing and it should be, but like they had a massive public housing building program And especially, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, right after World War II, I mean, they especially needed that. And I think that's another crowning achievement of the post-World War II labor government. We shouldn't forget, you know, I think it should remind us that that kind of housing is possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So uh, on that note, I think, Paul, you have a few comments about uh, climate jobs, uh, which is, again, something else that we have covered before. But I think that there are a couple new fights or uh, new sort of controversies that are brewing. So what's happening? Yeah. And like you said, we've been talking about the Green New Deal on the show a lot lately and specifically how to make sure it's done in a pro-worker way, in a way that gets the support of labor unions. And one of the big issues right now that we've mentioned before is that on average, jobs in the renewable energy sector like wind and solar pay significantly less than jobs in the fossil fuel industry and are more likely to be non-union. So I came across this article from Politico that's a few months old, but still very relevant. And it has a lot of data to show the wage gap between renewable energy jobs and fossil fuel jobs. So the article says, 
Energy workers employed by solar and wind power companies earn significantly less than those who mine coal or drill for natural gas, according to data compiled by former Energy, energy Secretary Ernest Monia's Clear Energy Think Tank. For example, the median wage for solar workers is $24.48 an hour, compared with $30.33 an hour for those employed by the natural gas sector, which amounts to a roughly $12,000 annual wage gap. And there was a more recent New York Times article also talked about this problem specifically in the solar industry. In the article, it states, Building an electricity plant powered by fossil fuels usually requires hundreds of electricians, pipe fitters, millwrights, and boiler makers who typically earn more than $100,000 a year in wages and benefits when they are unionized. But on solar farms, workers are often non-union construction laborers who earn an hourly wage in the upper teens with modest benefits, even as the projects are backed by some of the largest investment firms in the world. In the case of Assembly Solar, the backer is D.E. Shaw with more than $50 billion in assets under management, whose renewable energy arm owns and will operate the plant. This situation is not inevitable or unchangeable, but as long as this remains the case, it will be a lot harder to pitch any climate plan as a jobs plan or to make the phrase just transition meaningful to workers currently employed in the fossil fuel industry. So the left needs to take this issue seriously and actively develop ways to address it. And we need to be understanding of why this may make many unions hesitant to go all in on the Green New Deal. And there are many different ways we can make green jobs better paying. And I think the biggest and most obvious is just unionizing these industries, which is why many union leaders see passing the PRO Act as a key to winning a truly pro-worker Green New Deal. Another approach unions are advocating for is what's called prevailing wages. So a prevailing wage is a minimum standard wage for a certain occupation in a certain geographic area, which applies across employers. And these are important because they have the effect of raising the wages of non-union workers closer to those of unionized workers. But a recent example of how some environmental groups approach this question provides a note of caution. And we're going to talk more about this situation with our next guest, but in Illinois, Environmental groups have been negotiating with unions on a plan to bring more green jobs to the state. So while the unions are behind mandating a prevailing wage, some environmentalists are using arguments around racial equity to oppose this. So in the article, they talk about while environmental groups wanted to exempt minority contractors from having to pay prevailing wage at first, labor claims that's antithetical to diversity goals and instead proposed a subsidy program to help those businesses pay the prevailing wage in their area. Environmental groups, however, say administering a prevailing wage would be unduly burdensome for minority-owned businesses just getting on their feet, and said it's unclear where that funding would come from, but bulk at the suggestion its coalition would do anything to set back equity goals. So let's think about this for a second. For a variety of historical factors, including, yes, discrimination in the building trades, non-union contractors are actually more likely to have a larger proportion of workers of color. But if these contracting companies, even if they're minority-owned, are exempt from prevailing wage law, their workers will be paid much less. And it's yet another example of anti-racism being mobilized to benefit business owners and managers of color at the expense of workers of color. So far more people will benefit by making a living wage, whether they are in a union or not. We can't allow ourselves to be taken in by those arguments that ultimately hurt our aims, like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football yet again. We especially can't afford this when we have such a precious opportunity to work with labor on renewable energy. 
Um, and Jen, I don't know your thoughts on that, but um, the the minority contractor thing really got me. I mean, it was like, I mean, perfectly plopped there as an example of how this stuff can go really long, re- really wrong. Yeah, I just want to say, so first off the bat, when I was reading about the my, uh, the prevailing wage carve out, um, I had to text Paul because I was like, I don't know what this means. There's no way that this could mean that, you know, minority owned or like black and brown owned businesses are somehow exempt from paying the prevailing wage. That just can't be the case. That's too cynical, like for uh, I for a supposedly progressive group, right, to advocate. Um, and so, you know, of course, Paul has to text back. Yes, that is what they mean. And as you were saying, I think that that uh, I, I don't know, I find it unbelievable. I it, it obviously is not going to benefit, as you said, workers of color in any way, uh, whether they're union or non-union. And I want to just also shout out Matt Huber, who, of course, writes for Jacobin and Catalyst on climate and energy. Um, He's made some really, I think, great comments in the past about how, uh, you know, a lot of the environmental or like climate justice movement really um, wants to foreground the sort of racial equity part of climate justice. And I think for good reason, right? Like we know that, uh, you know, so-called black and brown communities are also frontline communities. They bear the brunt of climate change. Uh, they bear the brunt of pollution. Uh, and you know, it, 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 I mean, there's no denying that many black and brown communities are disproportionately affected, but I think that Matt Huber makes a really good point when he says, you know, that may be true, but is this the way that we're actually going to get to a mass movement that can adequately take on capital and also then by extension, stop climate change or adequately fight climate change? Um, I think that, you know, at, I think that sort of foregrounding the racial justice element, although of course, as I said before, I understand the impulse, I think that it can go wrong in several ways. One is, of course, what you just pointed out or what we've been talking about, where you have these uh, very, I guess, you know, cynical or just completely wrongheaded um, uh, exceptions for, you know, uh, I guess, non-white business owners uh, telling them they don't have to pay the minimum wage or the prevailing wage. Um, that's kind of at uh, that's kind of at, you know, the worst end, I guess. Um, but then also, I think even though a lot of this racial justice discourse when it comes to climate change is, as I keep saying, very well intentioned, um, it can also it also runs the risk of suggesting that this problem is not anybody else's. Right. That like climate change over the next 10 or 20 years or whatever is really going to only affect frontline communities and not anybody else. We, of course, know that's not true. Um, And like I said, I don't think, you know, at least for me, it doesn't feel like a way to start with uh, building a mass coalition. Um, And finally, on the labor, you know, angle, I'll just say that I think that we now have very many examples of how um, when, you know, when we're talking about climate change and labor is treated as just sort of another person at the table, right? Or like another quote stakeholder or another participant rather than actually co-leading. I think that that is not, I mean, that might work for, you know, various things within the climate justice movement, but when it comes to specifically green jobs, good jobs and a just transition, I just, I don't, I don't see how it can be any way other than labor leading. Yeah, you know, I think the 
and all this stuff kind of misplaces what is the central strategic dilemma right now. And again, that is the fact that as of now, renewable energy jobs are much lower paying. And that is the barrier to like getting someone to think who's in a well-paid unionized job that a transition would be good. So, you know, mm-hmm. that really is where the focus needs to be. And and again, to be clear, last thought on this, the prevailing wage, because I know some people are going to be saying, well, you know, these white building trades unions are pushing prevailing wage. Again, that actually mostly benefits non-union workers because yep. if you're in a union, you're negotiating your wage is probably higher than prevailing. Prevailing just raises the floor for non-union workers, you know, so that's primarily actually who it would benefit. Um, but this is all a great uh, segue to our um, first guest. Um, so how about we bring her on um, today? We're really happy to have Maddie Sarvinsky. Um, she is the founder and director of a campaign for a green nuclear deal. She recently wrote a piece um, that we're going to talk about today for the Daily Herald called Fossil Fuel Workers Will Win Big If Illinois Can't Pass an Energy Bill Including Nuclear Power This Will uh, This Year. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, so how about we start, you know, just talk about what's been going on with the Byron Nuclear uh, Power Plant in, in Illinois. What is the situation currently? Sure. So basically... Um, The nuclear plants, or at least four of the ones that we're talking about in Illinois, exist in an electricity market. And the issue with that is these nuclear plants are being forced off the grid by subsidized renewable energy projects and historically cheap natural gas. So last August, Exelon, the operating utility for the Byron and Dresden nuclear plants, announced that they were going to have to shut down two of these plants this year in September and November of 2021, unless something was done or legislation was passed to adequately value nuclear for its reliable carbon-free electricity. And since August, there has been a campaign to pass a comprehensive um, energy package to take Illinois into a carbon-free future. And the initial thought was that May 31st would be a deadline for legislative action, being the end of the spring legislative session. But as you were describing earlier, there's been, you know, major disagreement by the environmental lobby and the labor lobby, and that deadline sort of came and went. Um, Negotiations continued with the thought being that, okay, we can bring legislators back to Springfield for the summer to vote on this ahead of the closure of Byron and then Dresden. And unfortunately, yesterday it was announced by both sides that they've reached an impasse and will be um, foregoing conversation. Now, these plants are in great condition and can and should continue to operate for decades to come. But unless action is taken, you know, in the next week or two, there will be no option to reverse course and they'll have to permanently shut down. And if this plant closes, how will that affect the state's ability to meet its greenhouse uh, greenhouse gas emissions goal? I mean, it will be extremely difficult to come back from. I dare say it may even result in a permanent emission spike. You know, over the course of the past year, um, Governor Pritzker has overseen the largest increase in electricity emissions in the nation, um, which are up 31 percent. 
So if we lose 30% of our state's carbon-free electricity, I mean, that's just simply going to entrench fossil fuels and make it that much tougher to get to his goal of carbon-free by 2050. Hmm. And kind of at the center of a lot of this um, is some legislation that I know you and others are rallying behind called the Climate Union Jobs Act. Can you talk about that legislation and why you're so supportive of it? Yeah, so this is the labor-led bill, and there are a lot of things that personally I love about it, including, you know, um, mandates for electric school buses, a lot of really awesome incentivization programs, um, guarantees for fossil fuel workers who are displaced with the transition, but the main reason that I and others in my organization are backing this is because it prioritizes protecting Byron and Dresden. Um, and, and that's simply the most important thing to keeping emissions down in Illinois, to saving thousands of jobs in clean energy, and to reaching those admirable climate targets. So there are a lot of things to like about it, and I'm particularly thrilled to be supporting the bill labors behind, but really for me, it's that nuclear component. And as you pointed out, unfortunately, it seems like negotiations have pretty much broken down. What have been the main points of disagreements between environmentalist groups and labor unions? Sure. There are, there are two sticking points as far as we can tell from the outside. So the first is the fate of a handful of fossil fuel plants. On the one side, environmentalists want a legal closure deadline for all coal plants and all natural gas plants in the states, no exceptions. On the other side, labor would like exceptions. Um, there are three relatively new and under construction fossil fuel plants that they would like to be exempt from that provision, mostly to you know, protect those jobs in construction and operation, as well as protect the energy co-ops and municipalities that have invested in them. So what you get now is this dangerous game of chicken, as I mentioned in my article, where in order to solidify all coal closures and all natural gas closures, environmentalists are willing to risk this massive and perhaps permanent spike in emissions for failure to save Byron and Dresden with legislation. So that's the, that's the one issue. The second issue is what you mentioned before, which are the fair labor provisions. Labor has been working hard to ensure that renewable energy projects in the state going forward would hire union employees as well as pay a prevailing wage. And um, as you were discussing before, the environmental NGOs are pushing back, um, claiming that this would disproportionately hurt minority communities and people of color. And so that seems to be our other sticking point. And, you know, Recently, I did a segment on the show about nuclear power. It got a lot of very passionate uh, comments on both sides, which I think is good. Like, I think, as I said in that video, I've personally, my views have been involving on nuclear. I'm definitely not any type of scientist, but, um, you know, my views are changing. I think it's a good discussion. But, I mean, it seems to me there are very valid concerns about nuclear energy. I think 
mostly, you know, danger of meltdowns and the issue of storage. So, you know, what would be your response to some of these concerns from those on the left about nuclear energy? Luckily, there's a lot of great information um, out there on these issues. People who work has inspired me. I think actually Lee Phillips just published a really great piece called Nuclear Energy in the Land that deals with some of these safety issues as well as um, concerns over the waste. But what I will say is that um, nuclear is any clean energy transition, any energy source that we look at has to be reliable, resilient, cost-effective, carbon-free, and safe. And nuclear is the only energy source that we have that checks all of those boxes. It's actually the safest way to reliably produce electricity. Um, And in terms of the waste, I think there's a lot of misinformation about it, particularly coming from The Simpsons. At least that's how I first learned about nuclear waste. But it's actually really boring. It just sits on site, um, has never hurt anyone But what I will say about The Simpsons quickly is that there's a lot of misinformation about nuclear net, but it does deliver one really powerful truth about nuclear. It shows this incredible reality where a person without a college degree can support his or her spouse and three children, um, have a home in a beautiful community, and contribute to a better world through a union-backed clean energy job. And that reality ends for a lot of folks in Illinois if we lose these plants in the coming months. I got to say, I've never looked at the Simpsons like that, but that's a great way to put it. (laughs) If you ignore the three-eyed fish, it's very pro-nuclear, actually. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, and so can you tell us about, you know, the organization campaign for a green nuclear deal? What are some of the things you've been up to lately? What what are you generally trying to do as an organization? Sure. So our general mission is to um, share a vision for made in America nuclear power as a way to regain industrial capabilities and create high wage, strong, permanent clean energy jobs and um, or jobs in clean energy and manufacturing. So my hope with this organization was to sort of punch at the national level and get into the national conversation, um, particularly talking about expanding public power through federal vehicles, et cetera. But there is no future for nuclear in the United States if we're losing perfectly good plants. I mean, Illinois is... America's nuclear powerhouse. So this year I've been primarily working in New York to show what happens when you shut down perfectly good plants like Indian Point and then fighting like hell to keep Byron and Dresden living to see another day. And this might be my final question, but just broadly about the Green New Deal. And, you know, it's kind of easy to forget that the Green New Deal, at least as a slogan, is like actually relatively new. And, you know, I I have such complicated feelings about it. I feel like in certain local areas and cases, there's a lot of really great, inspiring work. You know, we we had on our show fairly recently, a few months ago, um, someone from New York, um, Climate Jobs, and they've been doing a lot of great work getting buy-in from the building trades and 
around green jobs. Um, you know, but as we've talked about on the show, there's I have a lot of criticisms of the approach as well. I mean, what is your kind of broad assessment of like the Green New Deal generally? What do you think is the biggest mistake the left is making around this? What do we need to do better in order to make this a reality? I would say there are two main criticisms that I have. And first is that I don't think there is any such thing as a serious decarbonization and environmental jobs program that doesn't absolutely recognize and prioritize nuclear power. And I recognize that the left is changing its mind. And I think we've made a lot of powerful progress, but I think more people need to be speaking up on this issue. And then the second is it's not a jobs program of any sort if it doesn't have the backing of labor. I think um, a lot of the sort of local organizations organizing around the Green New Deal haven't aren't really concerned about what their local unions want, don't have the backing of trades workers, and have sort of left them out of the conversation. So that's something that I'm hoping to at least fix is being actively involved and honestly just amplifying the message of what working class people actually want and how we can sort of accommodate that in a transition to a low carbon future. Right. Very well said. Well, um, thank you so much, Madison, for coming on and all that you're doing on this issue. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. All right. Have a great night. I was just going to say, I liked that Maddie shouted out Lee Phillips. I should have known that was coming, but it made me, of course, think about your, Paul, spicy pro-nuclear segment uh, back when you and Lee and Kale were hosting the show, uh, The Nuke Boys, as I think you're now known. (laughs) But yeah, that was a great talk. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I mean, it's very interesting, um, just topic. And I think, again, we need to talk more seriously about it. And, you know, to Mm -hmm. be clear our position not to speak for you, Jen, but like to be 100% clear, you know, it's not like we're saying that we should not be aggressively developing solar and wind and geothermal, right. we absolutely should. And, and again, I don't think it's inevitable that those jobs have to stay low wage and non union. You know, again, the, I think the main point is we really should seriously consider nuclear being part of the overall picture. Um, you know, and uh, again, from the jobs angle, but also from like the actual reliability energy angle, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we ju- we should just keep it in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we definitely will have, uh, I'm sure, more to say at at other points in the future on the Green New Deal and nuclear energy. Paul, your new favorite topic, um, but also uh, the just transition. Right. Um, that's something, as you've said, we've talked about on the show before. That term comes from Tony Mazaki, one of your faves, um, and you know. I think that um, I think again, it's it's um, it's just really important to understand. I think that just transition has to begin obviously with the labor movement. Um, it can't just be you know an empty phrase that uh, you know activists are throwing around, which I think unfortunately, as we've seen in so many instances that we just covered, um, is is what it has sadly become. Yeah, and you know I. I'm not in the building trades. I would never claim to speak for them. You know, I I can't say I have my pulse and everything that's going on. But increasingly, just based on conversations I've had with local building trades members and leaders, you know, we are actually very close to getting a lot of Um, Mm buy-in. You know, again, it's just a central question of making it real, uh, making the transition real. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there really is a lot of potential. Um, we just got to put some meat on the bones of like actually coming up with plans uh, that work and, and take this issue seriously. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think in a couple minutes, we are going to bring on our next guests, which of course are Adolf Reed and Walter Ben Michaels. Um, I'm super excited for this duo. Uh, They, of course, have been on the Jacobin channel before, uh, but I think not in tandem. Uh, And I want to mention that, um, you know, I think the first time I was on the Jacobin channel was interviewing Walter Ben Michaels. Uh, So it's all coming full circle. And Paul, you know Adolf Reed from real life. You were his student, right? You know, I actually wasn't. I, uh, I, like, sat in on classes like a, I guess, a weird fanboy or something. But then we eventually (laughs) met, yeah, in real life, um... And, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Adolf is a very serious organizer as well. He's not just an academic. So I actually most know him through organizing meetings, whether it's for Medicare for All or for mm-hmm. Labor for Bernie back in the day, the good old mm-hmm. days. Um, but, yeah. There was a New York Times article that kind of recapped the controversy surrounding some of Adolf's prior remarks on racial disparities. Do you remember this? Um, But anyway, I bring this up because it came with a picture where Adolf is like sitting in front of his or standing in front of his class and like actually looks like super delighted to be there, like clearly talking about like labor or something. And if you look in the picture, there is a guy in the front row who's wearing a union shirt. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Was it me? Or no. It wasn't you. I think he had red hair. Maybe it was you. I mean, who knows what you looked like back back during that controversy. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, if you are a student of Adolf Reed's and you were in that picture and you're wearing a union shirt and that is you, uh, you're invited on the show too at some point. That's right. Um, All right. Well, uh, I think we are actually still waiting on Adolf, um, but I see that Walter has logged into the chat. uh, So should we go ahead and bring him on and kind of get the ball rolling? Yeah, let's let's go. Let's do it. We are now joined by Walter Ben Michaels. You all know him as the author of The Trouble with Diversity. Uh, He is also professor uh, of English at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, And his other books include The Shape of the Signifier, and his most recent is The Beauty of a Social Problem. Walter, you are coming into one of our strangest live streams yet, I think. We are in the middle of transitioning over to a different YouTube model, but this is all a long-winded way of saying it's good to see you again. Oh, you're muted, Walter. Walter. you're muted. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so rarely muted that it's actually a good thing when it happens. (laughs) I think actually anytime I mute myself like this, probably half what's listeners break out in applause and they finally. And actually, it, I, I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, we did say that we might take some audience questions for tonight. So maybe after we have run through all of the extensive things that we're going to ask you and Adolf, um, if you're open to it, uh, we might, we might throw you some, some extras. Fine with it, no problem. Sounds good. So to see, I've never actually met Paul in person, but we're, we've been in a reading group. Yeah, we're we're Zoom buddies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we actually, we do have Adolf here now, so why don't we bring him on if you're there. Hey, Adolf. Hey, how you doing? Good. We, uh, we have to give you a proper introduction, since we did for Walter. So, of course, Adolf Reed is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. 
He's the author of several books, including W.E.B. Du Bois, An American Political Thought, Stirrings in the Jug, and Class Notes, and is also co-editor with Kenneth Warren of the book Renewing Black Intellectual History. Um, Adolf, we were saying to Walter that this is a slightly more casual conversation than we usually have on Jacobin, but we're really happy to have you both. So welcome. Good. I'm glad to be here. Good to see all you guys. And I just want to say, uh, well, I approve the t-shirt representing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that full t-shirt says, if you can't, you can only see the top, which is UIC, which is University of Illinois, Chicago, UF is United Faculty. So Adolf's the organizer and I'm not, but I have done about two years worth of organizing in my life. And what that two years was, was was right there. organization of UICUF. And I'll say certainly better than wearing a University of Penn shirt. So, oh, I've, yeah, a I've, low bar, low bar. I never had one on. <laughs> I've never had one in my possession. All right. Um, well, let's just jump into disparities then, right? I mean, okay. we're, we're all here now. Um, so the persistence of racial disparities in the 21st century, I think, as you have both pointed out many times, is sort of taken as a sign of the enduring legacy of racism in the U.S., right? I think that one of the sort of biggest proponents, though, of course, you know, by far not the only one, is Ibram Kendi. I want to quickly read a quote uh, that he has in The Atlantic. This was an article that came out recently, and I think it kind of perfectly summarizes the... Um, the sort of uh, framework that we're going to be discussing. So Kendi writes, the signposts of racism are staring back at us in bold, big, bold racial inequities. But some Americans are ignoring the signposts, walking by on racial inequity, riding on by the evidence and proclaiming their belief with religious fervor. America is not a racist country, Senator Tim Scott said in April. So then Kendi goes on to list some of the various racial inequities that he was referring to. Black babies die at twice the rate of white babies. Roughly a fifth of Native Americans and Latino Americans are medically uninsured, almost triple the rate of white Americans and Asian Americans. Native people are nearly three times as likely as white people to be impoverished. The life expectancy of black Americans is much lower than that of white Americans. White Americans account for 77% of the voting members of the 117th Congress, even though they only represent 60% of the U.S. population. So like I said, um, I think that this is actually a pretty common way of looking at racism and racial inequality in the U.S. today. Uh, Kendi, of course, I, you know, sort of zeroed in on because he is... He, he uh, you know, has a center on anti-racism, and um, I think that he has also called for the establishment of a department, uh, you know, at the federal level to kind of study these disparities and, and inequities. I'm sure he has. Yeah. yeah, right. So um, you, know, you can't be the secretary of anti-racism unless there is a secretary of anti-racism. Well, exactly. <laughs> right. First, so first, first. got to plan ahead. It's important. There's nothing so wrong with job security. Ask, <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so this is this is to ask both of you, um, because you are both critical of this framework and actually have been for many years at this point. Um, you argue that this is an inadequate or even conservative way of understanding inequality in the U.S. today. Uh, so for those who are unfamiliar with your argument, can you lay out maybe starting with you, Adolf, why this is not a good way of looking at inequality in the U.S.? Well, for one thing, it's simple-minded, right? I mean, just because, so you see right, the, the potential for, um, for naive things that you can do with numbers is right there, right? Just because you find this statistical relationship doesn't mean that you have identified a cause. And 
it certainly doesn't mean that you've identified a cause when the cause that you identify is racism because you don't have the, you don't have a causal account of how racism does or produces these disparities that you say it produces. And so, so that's problem number one, right? Like this doesn't tell us anything, right? Um, who to whom Kendi is selling books didn't know or would be surprised to find that there are racially skewed disparities in the, you know, like in the distribution of good things and bad things in American society. So it doesn't do anything for us. So, so, I mean, that's my opening comment. I'll pass it to Walter after that. This is a short relay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we didn't practice, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you can take it another way. I agree with everything I'd all said, but what if you take it another way and say, well, look, supposing, supposing you just do assume, you know, for principles of argumentative charity, that every disparity is a more or less direct function of racism. I mean, think of the insurance model, uh, the example he gives. So it's just a zero question. I mean, it's certainly true that black people are underrepresented with respect to insurance. Um, a lot of people in the U.S. don't have uh, adequate health insurance, most of them white, but it's still nonetheless true. Blacks are overrepresented. And let's say it's because of racism. What's the way to solve that problem? Or what counts as a solution? Well, there are two ways to think of a solution. One is you could say, yeah, because of racism, black people are underrepresented with respect to insurance. So what's the solution? The solution should be that black people should have as much or as little insurance as white people have. So a lot more richer, better off black people will have better insurance. Poor black people, just like poor white people, won't have insurance. Or you could take, and that's what we would call the liberal you know, solution. The liberal solution is we're not worried about inequality as such. We're worried about disproportionate inequality. We're worried about the equality that's an effect of racism or more generally sexism, discrimination of one kind or another. The socialist solution, and actually just say the kind of social democratic solution, is that everybody should have health care. It completely takes away the problem of disparity, but it takes away two disparities. It takes away the disparity between black and white a disparity, which if you remove that one, you leave the disparity between rich and poor completely intact, and then takes away that more fundamental disparity between the rich and the poor. So, you know, Kendi is just like a shill. I mean, really, truthfully, you know, Kendi's not the worst by any means. Oh, he's probably in the top 10. But Kendi's just a shill for liberalism. And liberalism is, in effect, a mode of defending inequality by objecting not to inequality as such, but to those inequalities which are caused by racism, sexism, etc. So, you know, without even questioning the history um, and accepting his history, although I think one shouldn't, but without even questioning, one wants to say this does not count as a leftist solution. The reason it doesn't count as a leftist solution is because it's not about producing a more equal society, one where everybody has health insurance. It's about producing a society where the inequalities are justified because the only inequalities you have are the ones that are the only the inequalities you get rid of are the ones that were produced by racism and sexism. And the only inequalities you are left with are inequalities produced by something else about which you don't need to think. So I want to follow that up by asking, I suppose, um, 
if, you know, challenging racial disparities is kind of the main mode of anti-racism, especially over the past year, um, it, you know, it reminds me of something that I think you both have brought up at various points in kind of different venues, which is that uh, you, you've both said in, in certain ways that you suspect that in the 21st century, anti-racism may ironically come to play a similar role in upholding capitalism that racism once played. Can you explain how this works? Uh, what's going on here? Well, I mean, like I often go, go back to the uh, sort of founding moment of, of uh, modern white supremacist ideology in the U.S. at least, and that's uh, you know, the imposition of a white suprem- an explicitly white supremacist order in um, the South, right, in the last decades of the 19th century and first decades of the 20th. Um, disfranchisement, right, was an element of that imposition, right? Um, and of course, codified racial segregation. And this could be a nice place to plug my forthcoming book, a verso book, which I'm not quite accustomed to doing, but uh, I've got a non memoir that'll be published uh, by Verso uh, just after the turn of the year called uh, The South, uh, Jim Jim Cronin's Afterlives. But white supremacist ideology, right, was quite specifically constructed, um, elaborated, and imposed. I mean, that's what all those fucking statues and shit were all about, right, That, 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 that all got erected between, you know, 1885 and 1915, right? Um, and it was, and the point of uh, in, imposing an ideology, a codified and and and, and um, theoretically elaborated ideology of white supremacy, was to secure ruling class power, what was basically planter and merchant capitalist rule, in the agrarian South, after beating back um, a more or a semi-successful uh, challenge from the lower orders in the populist uprising in the early 1890s. The work that white supremacy did, as um, Charles Acock said uh, in uh, you know, North Carolina um, uh, uh, around 1900, after the putsch against um, the populist government that had been elected statewide twice uh, in 1892 and 1896, that we need the strength that comes from all thinking alike. Right. Um, So from that perspective, racism uh, was deployed in an aggressive way in the South. And I'm just talking about the South now, like outside, like the story is a little different. Well, the details of the story are a little different, but the function of the ideologies of ascriptive hierarchy was basically the same. Um, But uh, it's a mechanism for. um, pooling populations together as nominal groups and attributing categories to them that mark them off from other populations that you've pulled together as uh, as ascriptive groups. Um, and um, the work that racism did, and I'll go back to the uh, you know, Jim Crow South for a second, was um, protect capitalist interests by, and this is like an old story. It's like, well, I almost feel like, like, like an old dope for rehearsing it, but it's true. Pitting populations defined as racial groups against one another and, and 
and saying to and enforcing upon uh, working class whites that their uh, interests were bound up with the interests of the white ruling class. Well, fast forward from the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th to the beginning of the 21st, and we see anti-racism doing similar kind of work for um, architects of um, a race reductionist political ideology vis-a-vis blacks and and other non-whites. Um, so that um, so when we think back, for instance, at the um, bitter response of race reductionist, you know, radicals, uh, you know, to Bernie Sanders in 2016 and in 2020, their response was basically a version of "We need the strength that 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 comes from all thinking alike," and that's a sense in which, just as racism uh, in uh, the late 19th century was a, was a big deflection uh, that originally took the form. I mean, look, there's a coon over there. Uh, anti-racism now does the same thing. Look, there's a racist Trumper over there. Look, there's somebody else over there. Uh, but, it, but, but in both cases, the function is to deflect grievances from, um, from their source in capitalist market relations and which includes uh, on the labor market dynamics and, and to project it onto a scapegoat. I'm going to come to another Ibram X Kendi quote, and I apologize in advance. Um, think of this as like a daytime game show respond to that quote. So I'm going to throw this quote out there and I want, you know, okay. see what you all think. Um, and this, this is a real quote. And he's, I think he has said in some occasions, it's one of his favorite quotes and it's the heartbeat of racism is denial the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. So for both of you, I mean, what it, what do you think is wrong with this way of looking at politics and social change? And maybe we'll start with Walter this time. Well, no, I just actually want to say you're, you're playing the game wrong. What you should do is read the quote and then it's like a Jeopardy thing. Right. Name, like we got to name who said it. Kind of thing. We that's, actually... That's the answer will always be Ibram Kendi. Right. Maybe you could stick in occasionally like white fragility. Right. So we actually have said... Up. Yeah, In all seriousness, we we've said we should play a game of doing Randolph and Rustin quotes and having people <laughs> guess. And I'm sure people would guess like KKK member or something yeah. um, for some of them. But anyway, uh, yeah, Walter. Yeah, I mean, so I th- at the core of that is 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 the effort to moralize it. You know, the origin of all that stuff is everybody's saying for the last 15 years that first slavery, then racism are the kind of original sin of, uh, you know, of, of American society. And the whole point of original sin is to place uh, the question of politics in a moral framework. And then, you know, to individualize it becomes a question of each person, in effect, you know, behaving appropriately individually. And, you know, you just want to say, like, on the one hand, no one's against that. We're all for anti-racism on an individual and indeed an institutional level. But on the other hand, it just has nothing to do. I mean, this goes back to, you know, Adolf's talking about why, in effect, anti-racism is the kind of cutting edge of neoliberal capitalism in the 21st century. We're, we're all for commitment to individuals behaving appropriately. But if all the individuals behave appropriately the entire time 
and, and, and become as moral as they can possibly be with respect to the question of racism, what does that do? That just gives everybody the kind of, you know, conservative fantasy of equal access to markets. And Adolf used a phrase, I'm not getting exactly right, but a version of this from what he was saying before, which is then it opens you up to the market and to the results markets produce. But the whole essence of capitalist markets is they don't produce equality. They produce inequalities. And that's the kind of core right, of, of not just Marxism, but any kind of left encounter with capitalism. So if you've got a world where we've actually all cured ourselves of our racism and behave just like Ibram Kendi wants us to behave, we have exactly the same inequalities that we have now. We just have people with different skin colors um, or different, as they like to say, cultures occupying different rungs on those scale of inequalities. So, we, you know, the whole attempt to moralize it is, again, an attempt, in effect, to get rid of what, you know, neoliberal economists used to call the bad inequalities, equalities that don't have anything to do with efficiency, and actually let the good inequalities, inequalities that do have to do with efficiency, supposedly, do have to do with success in markets, let those inequalities rip. And, you know, that's like, gives you a certain kind of version of personal morality, but it actually leaves outside the individual level, the social structure of inequality completely intact, except now you can feel better about it. Um, that is, everybody can imagine themselves that they actually deserve to be where they are. Thoughts, Adolf? Adolf, any any thoughts? No, I got nothing to add. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know, like about half the time, like before Walter started to answer, I was thinking, gee, do you think Kendi has like, you know, D'Angelo out on a stroll for him. So like what he would say to her at the end of the day is, bitch, where's my money? Or or I mean, how do you think this thing is going actually between the two of them? But that's a red herring, obviously. Well, you know, I, and I, 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 would say, I, would, I prefer like it just to assume complete. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there's a thing in literary criticism, sometimes you call the Philistine hypothesis, which is you want to talk about the effect books have regardless of whether they're good or bad. Just mm-hmm. bracket that question. So, you know, you just bracket the question of whether people like Kendi and what's her name are just in it for the money or not. And just think, no, let's say they believe every word they say. They're just incredibly grateful that, I mean, no one's as grateful as Van Jones, but that was $100 million. They're incredibly grateful that, like, rich people are giving them money and they're trying to do the best they can with their money. And actually, these guys are getting their money's worth. They are getting a complete validization of capitalism. That's what the upshot of the Kendi D'Angelo program is. And Paul, you can follow up, it says here in the chat with D'Angelo, quote, but I never read a word that woman has written. I got nothing to say about her. So maybe Adolf can do it. Well, again, you all read my mind. I actually have a question for you all. We're doing conversational. Why are you all so obsessed with Kendi and D'Angelo? Well, I mean, to be be honest, I I mean, I, I chose that quote by Kenny S, because I think it's not just limits limited to him. I think this has really become the dominant approach. So many people look mm-hmm. at fighting racism yeah. in this like individualistic and moral way. And I'm going to drop a D'Angelo quote on you. And th- hey, this good. will be the end of the game. I'm I, I promise. Right. But another one I want to get your thoughts on. So white racism is ultimately a white problem, and the burden for interrupting it belongs to white people. Well, well, I assume that's from. D'Angelo. And I would say, first of all, that I liked her better when she was playing Miss Morello on Everybody Hates Chris. But um, (laughs) uh, 
Eh, I don't know what to say. I got nothing. I mean, because this I, just, I got one thing, which is that imagine the utility of that. Where when when is that kind of useful? Imagine that like you're a Jew in Germany in let's say 1936. You say, you know, man, anti-Semitism. It's like a, a it's a German. It's like a an Aryan thing, and the burden of it, the burden right. we're dealing with is on Aryans. They better just take care of their. So the moment actually, then there is a real danger. The Aryans are not going to take care of that problem. That's not their relation to it. If you're dealing with somebody who actually is a racist, they don't right. think of racism as being a thing they got to cure. They think of it as racism as an MO. That's the thing they're doing. So right. who are you addressing when you say it? You're addressing people who are simply interested in, you know, actually feeling a certain amount of guilt, but making it kind of manageable so that if they stop, you know, doing certain things that seem to them racist at work, but they still take home whatever salary they're taking and they can feel a lot better about it, everything's cool. It has nothing to do, you know, with any actual political, um, uh, uh, you know, change that would actually, in this case, do anything good for black people. Right. In the kind of alternative example for the Jews in Germany in 1937. Right. So, so I have a follow up that um, I, I promise does not quote either of the aforementioned uh, thinkers. Uh, and and it's this. So I think that we often hear on the left this line, we must do both, which is, of course, fight racism and fight capitalism. And Walter, in some of your earlier comments, you had sort of alluded to this. Uh, and And I think, you know, on the one hand, this statement is pretty unhelpful because, as you said, Walter, like, in a way, it's very obvious. Of course, we're going to fight racism and we're going to fight capitalism. But I think, you know... Uh, on the other hand, it, it doesn't really tell us much about what to do. So I wonder what you guys make of this. Is this the right way to think about our political commitments? And then Adolf, to borrow a line that you used, why can we not split the difference between anti-racism and anti-capitalism? Okay. Well, yeah, I'll start out because um, I'm, I'm talking about this kind of lately anyway. Um, in, in the first place, there's like no such thing as a race class dichotomy, right? Um, and there's no such thing as being class reductionist. Or if there is such thing as being cla- class reductionist, what it means ultimately is recognition that race is um, a species of a genus of ideologies of ascriptive difference. That is, um, no, no notions of difference based on what what you supposedly are rather than what you, what you do. Uh, that's a version of what I mentioned in my um, white supremacy comment. Um, and I mean, here's the deal. Uh, hierarchic, hi, uh, hierarchically organized societies um, can't sustain themselves just based on coercion, right? Um, well, some people like to think that, but, but, but it just doesn't work that way. So you need to have like some consensus, right? Some, some, some popular understanding that things are the way that they are because the way that they are and that's nature. What these ideologies of ascriptive difference do is, as I said kind of earlier, is they sort people into these uh, taxonomies, right? Uh, these taxonomies of, of arbitrarily constructed groups, Right, races, you know, religions, like whatever. 
uh, and assign them or, or construct around them sort of just so stories about why everybody seems to uh, ought to be where they seem to be in the system of hierarchy, right? Um, race um, emerged and evolved as such a category, you know, sometime over the last three, 400 years, depending on, on how you want to count and where, where you're looking at the moment. Um, and and it's worked to justify um, the um, emerging sociology and cultural or so- sociological and cultural order of capitalism as a political, economic, and cultural system, right? So in that sense, you can't really conceive of race, or, or, or it makes the most sense, certainly, because you can, people can conceive of anything, right? But historically speaking, race has um, emerged out of developing capitalist political economy and um, um, social control dynamics, so it's not separable from it. And see, this is one of the reasons that it's that that I think it's worth challenging, or rather, I don't know if it's worth challenging. One of the things that's problematic and insidious about the stuff that people like Kendi and the Afro-pessimists and other primordialists, right, um, um, deploy about the race idea is that they want to disconnect it from the historical and social processes in which it's always been embedded because uh, because those have been intrinsically linked to uh, to to the development of global capitalism from the very beginning. But the irony is, Walter and I both have pointed out many many times, is that making the move that they make right that is the move uh, of insisting that racial hierarchy or race ideology is transhistorical and transcontextual and primordial, even though some of them don't want to admit that they're saying it's primordial. So, well, it's only been around for 500 years, so I'm not saying, right, like in your DNA. Um, but the move that they make is exactly the move that Victorian racists like Madison Grant and William Z. Ripley and others made, right? They, they, they read, by reading race uh, as um, a discourse of inequality or a system of inequality, um, above and across the uh, particular social structures of accumulation might be one way to put it. What what you're doing by definition is is reading race into nature, uh, and that and that's the way that you get you know a race class dichotomy, right? Uh, but if you don't uh, take a primordialist view about what 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 race is, and take a view as I mean Walter and I both. Um, devised quite independently of each other, I think before we even knew each other, seeing race as much more the equivalent of unicorns, right, than of anything concrete that actually lives within history, then you don't see a race-class dichotomy and you see race as well as other discourses and practices of, of segmenting populations right uh, into artificial taxonomies as as intrinsic mechanisms of capitalist uh, i mean legitimation dynamics so yeah, that- you know, i was going to say Adolf and i agree on virtually everything we talk a lot about this stuff obviously we write together we send this stuff together but there are sort of two points of 
I don't know, potential like difference. One is the history thing, which maybe we'll get to. But the other is, so it up being by saying there are not such things as class reductionists. So I don't know. You know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I might be coming out as a class reductionist. You know, I'm at least class reduction, class reduction is curious. You know, I'm not there all the way. I'm like moving in that direction. So, and I think it's relevant to, you know, what, what's the source of this curiosity? I mean, I no doubt it has like complications that I can't quite take psychoanalysis or kind of deal with. But you know, yeah, right. And part of the feeling is that, you know, you want to say um, in terms of solving the problems of inequality and solving the problems of inequality, including the racial problems, the kind of basic intuitions, not even intuitions, obvious point, um, that doing it universally is more effective both for black people and for white people, for all people of color uh, and for white people, than it is to do it by the anti-racist route. It's kind of obvious. I mean, and the way I always think of this is just, um, and I don't know, maybe, Jim, we talked about this a little bit way a year ago, but I can't remember it. A lot's happened since then. If you take, if you look at, you know, where the race class, where the imposition of the race class dichotomy shows up, and you look at, a, a profession like CNAs who make like $23,000 a year and cannot live on what they do and do a very hard job, but not a job that requires a lot of education of a certain kind. Um, and they tend to be overwhelmingly women and, and largely women of color. And you think, well, look, the anti-racist program is, and it's obviously true. These people are funneled into these really bad jobs because they're women, that's sexism, and because they are women of color, and that's racism. So what's the happy ending? One version of the happy ending is that we should have more white guys doing those jobs. But, you know, it's not like a better world when white guys are being paid $24,000 a year to do these backbreaking jobs. No, it's a better world if, like, no one's paid $24,000 a year to do these jobs. People are paid a living wage to do these jobs under satisfactory working conditions under ways in which instead of our goal, social goal, being able to create the possibility for people to escape jobs or bad jobs, we're trying to take the bad jobs and make them good. That seems to me pure class reductionism. You don't even need to have the fucking concept of race to, to work that one through. And, and if you look at the actual practical problems now, if you look at the problems of who's getting promoted, like in, in, uh, at, at, Gold, at Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, you think, well, people of color don't get promoted as often as the white people do. That's not a problem I've got interested in solving. Who cares who gets promoted, at, uh, at least as a kind of a so left social project at Goldman Sachs? That's a problem of discrimination. No doubt it's the wrong thing. They shouldn't do it. But everything they do at Goldman Sachs is the wrong thing. They shouldn't be doing it. So I'm, as I say, I'm kind of like increasingly tempted by a kind of class reductionist way to think about this. And the kind of class reductions I'd be interested in is precisely when we say, when we're doing it in terms of employment and labor markets, let's stop worrying about who has which jobs. Let's start worrying about the jobs. And we can describe our ideas about justice in terms of the jobs without ever thinking about who has them. Oh, well, so I'm with you all the way on that, man. I mean, I don't see, because um, even when you make the point that these women are funneled into these jobs because they're women and they're POCs, like the picture that popped into my mind is, okay, well, why didn't Melody Hobson 
get funneled into those jobs, right? Uh, and the answer is because she had class resources that saved her from it. So it all comes 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 back to class and political economy, and 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 the impulse to kind of um, leave the immediate and empirical realm for explanation, right? And to go instead to you know, reach for the legacy of some shit, right? Like, well, right. Uh, I mean, the Trinidadian woman uh, who uh, who is probably documented, but who is here, uh, you know, working in a nursing home, is a victim of centuries of Brit colonialism in the West Indies, uh, right? No matter you know what composition of of you know, African or South Asian. Right, uh, she's her, her parentage is that's a that that's an hypothesis you don't need, right? Like you don't need to parse um, the historic legacy of slavery. I'm sorry, I just had to. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say it. No, uh, <laughs> that's one of the good things about hanging out with Adolf. There's certain things that I deeply, deeply want to say, but I'm just not allowed to say. And within 10 minutes, I can be pretty sure he's going to say it. So it's like, you know, one of the things about that would be that is that, um, and that goes to the history stuff, which is that, you know, I mean, reparations is the obvious version of this, but there are lots of them. You know, if you, if you, if you think about, so I live a little bit south of Evanston and there is a kind of limited form of reparations for people who have been unable to get into the housing market or redline in the past. But if you're committed to like, you know, universal decommodified housing, the account of why you don't have housing now right. is completely irrelevant. You know, if you don't have housing because your great, great, great grandmother was a slave and you've got a legacy of slavery. And if you don't have housing because your great, 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 great grandfather was a slave owner, but like he blew it all on women, wine, and more slaves and saw and left, left everything. It doesn't fucking matter. You don't have housing. The public good requires you to have housing. If we're committed to the public good, we don't primarily care about the causal account of why it is you don't have enough for a mortgage. What we're not committed to do is getting you into the mortgage market by returning to you essentially private property, which you ought to have owned. We're committed to the public part of it. The public part, socialism in general, makes the history of how you came to be um, unequal irrelevant. What we want to do is make everybody equal. We don't need to do, and this is exactly what Adolf was saying there, is give people have good and bad accounts of how inequality worked out. The good and bad accounts of how the inequality worked out is exactly what Chicago neoliberal econ economics began with. That's kind of at the core of it. And the whole point for us as socialists is we don't give a fuck. Whatever, how, whatever, whatever caused inequality, we're interested in getting rid of it, not in figuring out who deserves it and who doesn't deserve to have a mortgage, who deserves the house and who doesn't. Walter, I 100% agree, and I want to dive more into the history for and against in a little bit. Um, but I have a really quick follow-up question for Adolf, which is that, um, you know, I, I think that I, of course, agree with your remarks on kind of the false dichotomy between race and class. But I have noticed that um, recently, or maybe not so recently, there's a kind of bastardization of that, uh, where, you know, people will say, like, well, like race and class, like you can't really separate them or like they're, you know, you, you, you can't distinguish racism from capitalism, which, of course, as I think, Walter, you know, the last time we spoke, you pointed out means that, 
you get a formulation like racial capitalism, right? Or this idea that if you are attacking racial disparities, you're somehow also challenging capitalism. Um, what do you make of this? Or actually, like, to invoke history again, how far back does this argument go? Um, and how do we respond to it? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I know that argument goes back at least to the early 1970s, right? Uh, and it was um, kind of um, around the new communist movement, right, uh, that Max Elbaum has written about. Um, th there was a lot of um, chatter, right, about uh, you know, multiple oppressions, uh, sometimes triple oppression of, of you know, black, black women, for instance, uh, and attempts to um, formally um, elaborate what, how the multiple oppressions came together and who has it worse and whatnot. Uh, uh, whether it's older than that, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, um, um, the, uh, I mean, my sense about it, and this just might, might not reflect anything more than the trajectory in which I experienced it, but there was a little tiny nodule um, that came out of the meltdown of SDS at the end of the 1960s of sort of ultra-left um, um, you know, Marxoid types who argued against uh, you know, separate Black movement, divides the working class, separate women's movement, divides the working class. Um, and more than a principle, right, uh, it, uh, I mean, that stance um, reflected a kind of tone deafness about uh, the way that things were going on in the world at that point and left a number of portholes open uh, for uh, a version of, uh, you know, a Michael Lind version of Marxism, basically. And, and then that, and we started to see that like in the late 70s and the early 80s too, um, around what was then called the white ethnic uh, revival. Um, but within the, the Marxist left in the U.S., um, the um, emergence of this um, solar system of uh, sort of Maoist, Marxist, Leninist, anti-imperialist, um, anti-racist politics was the first, was, was, I think, where at least in, you know, modern memory, uh, you know, both, uh, both, both andism uh, emerged. And that's why... Uh, um, um, a number of the icons who contemporary both andists cite and point to, uh, you know, from back in the day, are people who who were uh, involved in the first wave. Of, I'm gonna, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna mention any names, but people who were um, in involved in that '70s uh, dynamic. But 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 a big problem with all that, right, is that. All that kind of discussion actually uh, reverses the intellectual trajectory, right, of how we should go at questions like that, right? I mean, I think we need to start out always from the empirical relations uh, and then uh, sort of um, draw uh, the theoretical uh, I mean, generalizations from, from those or at least let let empirical facts on the ground and, uh, you know, and dynamics that, that are unfolding around us uh, just suggest to us how it makes sense to try to uh, establish 
causality instead of coming in as as all these people do right and i mean you know the uh, uh the multiple oppressions people a half century ago and the both and people now they basically have have a catechism right that's constructed somewhere to satisfy some more or less uh, i mean sophisticated uh, lean toward less most of the time um criterion of internal consistency right that they didn't go out and try to impose on the world you know what i mean so um both andism i mean just like intersectionality right i mean the first time i read the intersectionality stuff which was a long time ago then my first thought was okay well how do you imagine these um bounded and rounded off identities that the intersectional theorists describe as coexisting inside the head and the lives of a given individual in the present like civil maybe till civil was exposed to what civil was but that's just you know people don't go from their womanness to their blackness to the to the lesbianness but but to whatever so it's like i don't know um this this way of thinking about social structure right seems seems to me to be wrong-headed fundamentally right from the very beginning yeah as a marxist i think it's fundamentally well especially as a marxist i think it's fundamentally wrong-headed and, uh, you know if you just think about both and i don't think there is a general theoretical answer to that which is why i keep on being asked but it does always get asked but you think about what it means when it's asked so like if someone's talking about you know it really is true both black people and women are like unbelievably underrepresented um among like ceos of major american corporations and so i want to do both and i want to solve the problem of there not being enough you know black heads of major american corporations and i want to solve the problem of there being american corporations mm. those two things are not like a both and situation right and what you want to do is solve the second one if you're a socialist you want to get rid of the corporations right you know so it's a secondary thing yeah as long as we have the corporations no doubt it's better that they are gender equal or gender more representative or proportional same thing was true with race and everything else but one of those things is more fundamental than the other and the one that's more fundamental is getting rid of private corporations not making sure that women are 51% of the heads of private corporations so when you're doing both and if you really are trying to do the first part of your both what you're doing is nothing the fuck to do with the second part of it you know you're not doing both and you're talking both and but you're doing no 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 what i really want is like it's really bad that people are discriminated against. So it's really bad people are discriminated against. No one's denying that. But if you're focusing on that, the other part of the end, which is that the whole job structure is the problem, actually is ruled out right from the start. So I think it's a matter of like when people raise both ends. And I want to say it is the single thing people like most to say. I have never been in a room talking about this where people didn't ask about it. And that's mm-hmm. why I sort of started to think that no general answer can satisfy them, but right. particular answers sort of can. And that right. Well, I'll say one more thing about that too, Walter, just, to, I mean, pick up on your last point, which is obviously correct. It's even worse, right? Uh, in the sense that if you argue that both objectives 
are equally worthy. Well, you can, it's a lot easier to, and especially now, since 1965, to realize the first objective, that is, you know, the Beckerite objective, right? But the Beckerite uh, view of social justice, that then is to realize the second one. But what's, but what's at least implicit in pursuit of the first one is that, um, that there's, there's something about getting more blacks or more POCs and women uh, um, um, in, you know, in, into decision-making positions in corporations or, say, on the Supreme Court or whatever that automatically will lead us, um, bring us a little bit closer to the bigger objective. And what happens, of course, is that that's not the case, but, what, but when such people do uh, you know, get the brass, brass ring, then they, they, their minority status, right, becomes part of the arsenal that they and their confreres can use to combat, I don't know, the unionization of Amazon, right? Or, 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 or an abolition of the corporation. So it's even worse, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you could actually make a more plausible version, right? That people would, that even we might be, you know, thought to accept. So we're thinking about police stuff and police violence, police brutality. So in Chicago, it's a thing, like we ought to have more black policemen. And it makes complete sense. We should have more black policemen. It's, you know, we're, uh, uh, it should be more in touch with the population. And then you can make the kind of arguments Adolf was just making. They'll have better relations to the community. There'll be less police violence. But of course, and that may well be true, right? That there will be less police violence. It'll be more, but it's not as if like white cops would never kill white people, right? If we go back to like 2020 and look at where we have full numbers of, of uh, unarmed people killed by the police, uh, the largest number of unarmed people killed by police is we know are white. But of course, black people were disproportionately killed by the police. You want to say, well, the real problem we solve by getting more black cops is not exactly the problem of people getting killed by the police. It's the problem of black people getting disproportionately killed by the police. But that's like you're saying, you know, we got a problem. This guy, he beats his kids and he beats his son every day twice. And he beats his daughter every day once. And someone's saying, we got to solve that, man. we got to make sure that he beats them each just once a day. You know, that'll be fair. That's not the problem, that he's beating one of them too often. The problem is that he's beating the kids. So there's a kind of superficial plausibility, you know, with the sort of more black cop thing, and actually maybe even a real plausibility. Proportionality is in some sense better than disproportionality. But if the fundamental problem is the distribution of property and the role the police play in defending that distribution of property, what color of skin they have is not going to be fundamental to determining how that one comes out. This is a, a good segue to talk about Black Lives Matter a little bit. And um, and Adolf, I have a sneaking suspicion many people that claim to hate you don't actually read your articles. They just read the title and start right. hyperventilating. Um, right. So, you, I mean, you recently wrote an article, non-site, of course, Black, why Black Lives Matter can't be co-opted. So can you kind of just break that title down? You know, why is it wrong to talk about the co-optation of Black Lives Matter? Well, well because there was never, well... I have a response on two levels. One is that co-optation is a cheap and easy way to think about what 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 happens in politics, right? Um, but the other one is that there never was any reason to expect 
that Black Lives Matter was going to be the thing that people who had high hopes for Black Lives Matter thought it could be, right? In the same way that there never was any reason to expect that Occupy was going to be the thing that people who had highly idealized hopes for what Occupy could be thought it was going to be. And, you know, after a certain time, you just get tired of going through this over and over and over, right? The cycle of hyperinflated expectations about what's not a movement, right? What's, what's not an organic politics, what has no track record of building a constituent base uh, and is moreover driven by individual personalities is not going to turn out like it turned out. And with Black Lives Matter, I mean, um, so, so, so when did Garza, Tometi, and Colors invent the hashtag? Was that 2014? Uh, by 2015, well, so maybe it was 13. I don't know. I'll give them that much. But by 2015, they were already attacking the left, right? Uh, and in 2016, and then in 2020, and at all points in, in between. So who is co-opting whom to do what? Yeah, it's like, what if you wrote a piece called Why Why Google Can't Be Co-opted? It's obvious why Google can't be co-opted. Right. The whole right. fucking point of Google is to do what Google's doing. Right. That's exactly why Black Lives Matter can't be co-opted. That's it. You know, it's just like, that's what the point of it is right from the start. That's the liberal point. That's the point of its liberalism. Yeah, I guess I want to follow up on that because I think that um, at the kind of heart of the argument that Black Lives Matter is being co-opted, uh, which of course, Adolf, you wrote about in Nonsite, is this idea that there exists a radical grassroots anti-racism, which is fundamentally different. I mean, I think a lot of people on the left acknowledge that like, yes, we don't like corporate diversity. Yes, we don't, or, you know, getting, you know, the black, uh, you know, Raytheon executive uh, on Biden's, in Biden's cabinet is like not what we want to do. But right. that that said, I think even though you have a lot of people acknowledging that there's a kind of as I say, corporate anti-racism or like neoliberal identity politics that we right. should oppose, there still exists some sort of authentic yeah. grassroots anti-racism. Right. I mean, Sorry? The grassroots part's complete fantasy. Right. Back when I first started writing on this stuff, there was still multiculturalism. People would say over and over again, yeah, the thing about it is, is that everything you say is true about liberal multiculturalism, right. not mm-hmm. about radical multiculturalism. The only problem was there's not a fucking dime's worth of difference between right. liberal multiculturalism and radical multiculturalism. Right. And that's exactly the way it works for Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. You know, there, that is, you need the kind of fantasy of the real thing and you can attach it to grassroots, but it isn't even a question. Supposing a whole bunch of grassroots people over there really did believe it, it would still be liberal. It would still be, no, we want, you know, the correct proportions. It would still be we don't care about equality as such. We do care about that, but that's not the Black Lives Matter part. That would be like, oh, no, we've never been allowed to say this. All Lives Matter part. And we know the people who did say All Lives Matter, no doubt did say it with the worst of intentions and the right. worst of motives. But that doesn't mean that actually they weren't in some technical sense right. Because if you haven't got the universalism, you haven't got like anything that's actually worth fighting for. You're just fighting for proportionality. So, yeah, I just don't think there is any such thing as, as radical Black Lives Matter. It was yeah. always what it was. Right. And I'll tell you what else about that, too. I mean, so, like, you want to see how far back back this kind of stuff goes. Uh, in the summer of 1970, I was living in Philly, and I went to um, the Panthers Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention plenary session 
at Temple, uh, you know, right after U- Ewing Newton got out of jail. And these two really earnest young white guys standing in front of me and my buddy uh, while we were waiting for the speeches and the, and the acknowledgement from Huey. Uh, and one of them turns to the other one and says, um, yeah, you know, I think the philosophy of right on is being co-opted. <laughs> I mean, and I, I was a prophet, really. And we left and went up the street to the, to, to the uptown because there was going to be a big show, 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 show that night. But uh, I thought, yeah, so that's like, what, that's like over 50 years ago. And right. it's the way that idealist leftism always works, right? Like you posit this thing. I mean, this is, the, the, this was part of what, what was so annoying about Beavis and Butthead, right? Who, who did that piece in Jacobin, right? So you posit this, this fucking fantasy about how movements work and the thing that's out there that's just waiting to be called together. Right. Like, um, you know, when we started the Labor Party, all the Trotskyists like in North America were accusing us of trying to corral the not yet quite existent revolutionary proletariat to like deliver it to the Democrats. Right. But it's that same kind of logic. And then when prophecy fails, as it were, um, you you ask who is co-opting this bullshit that never existed in the first place. (laughs) And I know, Adolf, you've heard me say this a lot. I mean, I've been harping on and there's been this stunning refusal to acknowledge that, again, at least from what I saw in person, I was at many demos, what I could see on TV or videos, the protests were overwhelmingly white yeah. last summer. Yeah. Well, I mean, there they, was a moment, though, when all of people were saying, it's different this time because so right. many of the protesters are right. white. Right. And they were just saying, oh, my God, the co-opting thing is going to be obvious right from the start here. This time. It's going to be right. and, I, and I think at heart of this is a lot of really, I mean, really embarrassing kind of tokenizing this idea of like the real radical black, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. And, you know, and I, I remember I got in this conversation, I guess, about a year ago. You know, I, I forget what it was exactly, but some event or something we want to do. And, and someone, of course, a white person insisting we have to reach out to a quote unquote black group. And what they meant is, of course you know, a, a, a supposedly radical group that is extremely small. And right. kind of what I posed to them is like, well, why are we assuming this group is necessarily more representative, so-called, of black people than, let's say, the NAACP? Right. I mean, they got more members. Or um, Unite Here, the union, yeah. they got, you know, yeah. more yeah. black members. Yeah. Um, and that question really throws people off because it's like, what you know, why are we getting this thing that maybe this small group of all black members of 15 people is more representative or, you know, can speak for a broader constituency? Right. Well, and there's also something that's kind of even tardier about it. So I'll give this one to the anti-racist. It is that, I mean, thought about this a lot and I wasn't the only person to think it. When um, American and other Western leftists were uh, you know, all over Cyprus's ass for not, uh, I mean, leaving the Eurozone, or when they were all over, you know, Chavez's ass, like for not, uh, you know, for not being radical or re- revolutionary enough. It's kind of like we don't have the capacity to do anything here, right? And it's not, you know, all because we're feckless, right? I mean, we're going up against the Colossus after all, um, but you want to see something happen. So like you, you know, 
send the wags in behind enemy lines, basically, right, to make something happen for you. That's because that's a little bit what this is like. I mean, if I were Michael Jordan, I would have won seven championships. I'm just saying, (laughs) but that's just me, you know. So, so I actually want to go back to the the big thing about history, Walter, because I, I know that you've been sitting on this for a little while, um, and I think it's really interesting. So, you you had sort of mentioned, uh, you know, before your your idea that we should basically forget about history, or there's a time and a place for us to forget about history. And I think that your point that you know, if you're poor now, it doesn't really matter how you came to be that way. We should alleviate the poor the the poverty. Um, I would 100% agree with that. Um, Now, that said, Adolf, something that I find really useful about your work is that you often utilize or refer to history in a way that I think provides a lot of clarity on where our politics right now should go. And actually, I should say... um, one of our favorite guests on the show to date has been Toure Reed, uh, who, of course, you both know. Um, and, and you know, I think that kind of at the height of the liberal hysteria around was the New Deal racist, he did something really useful and interesting, which is that he broke down exactly uh, what the social and political and economic forces were that led to the creation of, say, social security or redlining um, in a way that I think points us toward universalist uh, reclamation or expansion of public goods rather than what the liberals have been advocating for. So this is a long-winded way of, you know, saying, Walter, when is it that we should ignore history? And Adolf, when is it actually useful to invoke it? Okay. Yeah, so if you want to do a, just a quick, like, just theoretical version of be like, history is useful when, because knowing the truth is useful. History is completely useless when your claim to social justice founded on some causal account of how you were victimized. Right. So, and you can do it more specifically than that, but, you know, the things you're talking about with Ture and the, and, the, uh, and the New Deal, totally, it's completely useful to have people stop saying things which are false, especially if those things that they're saying that are false are helping them make their points. So even I, as anti-historicist as I've become, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I am going around saying, you know, Marx should have said, it wasn't enough to say, you know, if the philosophers have only understood the world, the point however is to change it. It's that, yeah, the bourgeois historians have only understood the past or known the past, the point, however, is to forget it. So right. I agree, however, that actually you can't just forget the past in the sense that, no, it's useful to know it. But when you're basing your claims to, in effect, justice now, to equality now, on bad things that have happened to you in the past, or bad things that have happened to your ancestors in the past. I mean, you know, think about it this way. You know, Marx, the whole goal, right, of the Communist Manifesto is what? Is that, you know, it's 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 from each according to his needs, right, um, or to each according to his needs, from each according, you know, to his abilities. It's not what's become the kind of current mode of this. The current mode of this is like, you know, we're replacing the key to social justice, socialism, with a kind of, you know, unusually progressive and ambitious program of tort reform, you know, but Marx could never have imagined, right, that the author, someone who said from each according to his ability, you know, um, to each according to his needs, couldn't have anticipated the degree to which at this point right now, to each according to his ability to establish a right of restitution with respect to property stolen from his ancestors would become a battle cry, none of the revanchist right which is always trying to reclaim stuff that was stolen from its ancestors, but the supposedly progressive left. 
And that's to me, you know, Adolf has started saying a lot a couple of years ago, both in our conversations, but also more generally, that um, what we need as a kind of as a kind of rallying point is just the idea of the public good. The, one of the triumphs of neoliberalism is that it's more or less eliminated the idea of the public good from our public discourse. But the point of the public good is that you know when we want people to have jobs, we don't want them to have jobs to, because it satisfies some claims upon the past and their property rights in the past. We want them to have good jobs because it's part of the public good for everybody to have a good job. It has nothing to do with the history. So to me, the minute someone tells you, I mean, my God, single most uttered phrase on the left is, you know, the problem until we come to terms with our racist, sexist, capitalist, whatever, until we come to terms with our history, we can never do anything. Once it is completely the opposite of the truth. We should stop worrying about come to, coming to terms with our history, which is in every respect about this, like everybody else's history, bad, and come to terms instead with what the requirements are of a truly public good. So the commitment to history is the source of justice that is dealing with it as the source of justice is intrinsically liberal and capitalist. It's a commitment to actually restoring to people private rights to property that they feel and may well be right have been unjustly taken from them. It's not as if the labor power of your great, 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 great grandparents wasn't stolen from you in slavery. And whatever you would have inherited from that wasn't stolen from you by slavery. It's not even as if the labor power of your great, great grandfather whose union bus was busted wasn't stolen from him by busting the union and therefore should have been inherited by you. All that's true. All that's liberal private property. None of this has anything to do with socialism. Socialism does not rest on how, you know, you got ripped off. Socialism rests on an idea of the public good that has nothing to do with restoring to you rights that have been deprived from you in the past or even in the recent present. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I agree completely with Walter on that. I mean, I think that um, what's, um, what's strategically useful, right, about or pragmatically helpful about studying history, right, uh, uh, I'm intellectually, but also, I mean, politically, like, I mean, intellectually, like we all agree that knowing is better than not knowing and like getting the story more or less straight is better than not. And what's, what, what that relates to as, as um, part of the political challenge um, is um, de- denaturalization and demystification of four decades or the products of four decades now of neoliberal ideological hegemony and institutional hegemony, which has produced the common sense. And that takes us back, 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 uh, back to the public good, uh, public good idea. Right. Also, I mean, the idea, what the notion and yeah, I mean, Christianity, crazy ass fucking uh, individualist. um, um, uh, I mean, Christianity has something to do with this too. Uh, But the idea that, Many people are walking around this country now believing that, you know, my right, uh, my self-conferred right. And like Ture points out that probably most of his students think that they, you know, that their rights come from God or from themselves. Um, uh, and if not most, at least a plurality. Uh, but but parrot, uh, you know, that I have an individual right 
uh, you know, not to feel like a wimp for wearing a mask or getting vaccinated because uh, because um, Doctor uh, I mean Jenny McCarthy told me that vaccines are bad and that that right trumps pub, no pun intended um, concerns with the public health or that I have a right to you know walk into a, a downtown mall with two AR-15s and a bazooka uh, just is testament to how badly we have lost on uh, in the public realm, right, um, uh, on the struggle over public good, right? I mean, what I just wrote a couple of days ago that, you know, three of Thatcher's most, most infamous dicta are the one about there's no such thing as society, right, only individuals and their families, uh, and then, um, you know, the quip that, that, um, uh, that an economics is the R, as you put it, because she's a Brit, uh, the method, the point is to change the soul. And the third was when asked uh, to reflect on her greatest accomplishment, she said, Tony Blair, because we got our opposition to, to change our minds. Well, they've won across the board on that. And the number one objective for us, I think, now, uh, to build the left. See, 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 here's problem number one, right, um, is that leftists in this, by and large, or people who identify with the left. This is, and this is a usage that, uh, I mean, Samir Santi is uh, suggesting that we propagate P-W-I-T-I-T-L <laughs> or whatever the fuck it is. It's not going to work. Right, I'll get it straight. But no, look, look, look well, some other groups take a third of the alphabet. So, <laughs> uh, but, but, um, but what people don't, just don't want to take in, right, is that no matter how dire things are, you can't do what you need to do until you've done what you need to do before you get to do what you need to do, right? And, and I know that might sound like Charles, what's his name in a Watson on a third street band, but, but, but one of the reasons that things are so dire is that the left hasn't been doing the work of trying to build a movement that's actually rooted in places and people with names and addresses and organizations and institutions the way the right has for the last two thirds of a century. Uh, and people, so that feeds a fantasy like if we can just elect more Kashamas want AOCs, whatever the fuck, I mean, I'll do it. Or we got to figure out what kind of position to take about Biden and never really get to the movement building work. And only, and we're not going to go anywhere except the concentration camps unless we eventually start doing that work, right? Um, and, and that takes us back to the public good question too, or, or what, I mean, the issue of the public good. And I think, uh, I mean, history is demystification is quite helpful. I mean, people, um, by and large, well, I mean, what, I mean, the younger and younger they get, like the less likely they are to recall that there used to be something called a weekend, right? <laughs> or a 40-hour week, right? Or, I mean, much less... Uh, I mean the history of, of 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 jobs and work and 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 how social categories like the employee have come come into existence, uh, but that's all part of the organizing work. I mean that's not. Uh, I mean that's certainly not uh, not um, well. Actually, no. I will make one comment about. Uh, I mean, history is a basis for 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 tort claims. That if you really uh, examine it the right way, 
what what you can show pretty quickly is that everybody would have some version of that torque plane, right? Except the the you know ten tenth of a one percent because all working people have been fucked over. And 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 they weren't fucked over in ways that were pretty, right? So I mean uh and it's just a losing game. If you go back to like the candy thing, now you've got me doing it. Like, you know this is the Thatcher. You started you it, Walter. I got my enemy <laughs> to adopt it. Is actually totally on you. Um, so I never should have done this show. But the thing about me is that if you go back to sort of like the idea of either everything you're doing is either racist or anti-racist, you just got to stop doing, you know, the racist stuff. Mm-hmm. Reframe that. Everything you do is either capitalist or anti-capitalist. You just got to stop doing the capitalist stuff. It is not possible. Right. Yeah. You know, no one imagines it's possible. All the kind of like bullshit moralism and and the both and part, you know, comes out in, yeah, you can sort of like move away from the racism part. You right. can stop doing this. You can think about it. Every time you buy something, every time you go to your job, every time you do everything that we do every day, right. that is capitalism. Right. And you recognize that actually, no matter what you do about it, only organizing something that will at least fight capitalism and in principle might destroy capitalism, that's part of what it is to be anti-capitalist. It has nothing to do with like, you know, where you buy, who you buy from, who you work for, nothing like that. None of that can 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 get you out of it. You can't you can't wish your way out of it. You can't imagine your way out of it. You can't produce a kind of etiquette for your way out of it. Right. The whole point of anti-racism is that it gives you stuff. No, you can do it every day of your life. You know, you can actually stop being racist this way. You can stop being racist that way. You can follow the whole Kendi D'Angelo catechism. And that just actually, you know, removes it from the realm of political economy or returns it to political economy only in the way that it's something your boss makes you do when he makes you have to read those stupid books and sit through that training and say the things they want you to say. And you're saying, and you're doing all that stuff. Why? Because whether you're racist or not racist, you sure as hell a worker in a capitalist economy, and you have no choice. Actually, I just want to say, I think that Robin D'Angelo says that uh, fighting racism is never done and you can never complete it, which is why, of course, you have to keep buying her seminars. Right. <laughs> but... Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I knew a couple of heroin uh, dealers. Like right, that. yeah. <laughs> and, um, I mean, just another note on the, on the history part. I mean, what's so frustrating about this moment is like, all the when people are drawing on history, it's all the wrong lessons mm-hmm. are being taken. I mean, thinking about that, the Angela quote about you know, it's a white people's responsibility to end racism. Doesn't that fly in the face of the whole civil rights movement? Yeah, yeah. But, I know, mean, imagine if that was the perspective of of African Americans. My like, view, it's a loser's game to try to say. Problem is, they're drawing the wrong lessons from history. We should go back and do this other thing and get them to draw the right lessons from history. Yeah. Now, you can do that in the classroom, you know, but you're where you may be doing anti-racist work, but you're not organizing. Right. That's for like and we're professors. So uh, when I'm in the classroom, I totally try and tell the truth about the history. Mm-hmm. And you do it in your writing about the history as well. But actually, if you want to organize people to do what is in what you think and what you hope they will think is their best interest, correcting them about what the real account of the past is, seems to me fourth or fifth down the down, right. down down the road uh, line of what's important. What's important is getting them to see what it is they need. The degree to what it is they need can be only gotten if it's something that we all need and we all got to get together to get it. 
And, you know, so I totally understand the frustration where people are just flat out, A, telling it wrong. I mean, it's like, you know, a penis cartoon, whoever it's so old, whoever was the person who always said everything wrong in that. So, yeah, you got a bunch of people out there. I mean, my God, I'm an academic. You make your living by pointing out how people are a lot more respectable than Ibram Kendi. Actually, say things that are wrong, you sort of correct them. Right. But you don't imagine that in doing so, you're organizing a politics. You imagine in doing so that you're getting your article published and the three graduate students who read it will realize that you were right and they were wrong. Right. It's fine, you know, but it's not politics. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I want to add one one thing to that point, too, so I was thinking about it anyway. Like, this is another pathology of how people think about history, right? And this one is more on the left. Smart people who have expertise or at least commitments uh, that to immerse themselves in some uh, facets of the past, right? Um, who can read, who also think that you read history to learn how to guide uh, or how to make sense of current problems and how to guide practice. That's just as dangerous as the tort stuff in a different way, right? Um, and, and I think we all know that this kind of debate goes on among left intellectuals all the time, and it doesn't have to be driven by uh, you know, disputes about uh, you know, how to interpret which holy books, but, but the logic certainly always comes comes back to something I mean, like that. Uh, and, but the idea that there are sort of trans-historical, um, theoretical uh, or, or trans-contextual, uh, I mean, theoretical maxims or I mean, axioms that, that, that may have made sense in one way at point A and can therefore help guide us at point B or C, is also wrong, uh, both uh, intellectually and 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 it's likely as not to be backward politically. So there was a question in our chat, which I want to throw to you now. Um, I think that's something that comes up a lot is, you know, a lot of proponents of anti-racism will point out that, uh, you know, historically and perhaps even now, white workers have been too attached to their whiteness to sort of support the expansion of universal public goods. And Walter, you had actually, you know, alluded to this earlier as well. Um, where does that line of reasoning or like where, where does that fall short? And uh, what is your response to that? Well, you know, I mean, it's kind of an empirical question. Yeah. Whether some white workers have been more, I can completely imagine that in some contexts, white workers have had like plausible reasons that have been really encouraged they the same before, to be more committed to their whiteness than to the interests of workers. Um, and yeah, you know, if you're trying to tell the truth about history and that's what happened, then you should say that. If you're trying to then draw some kind of moral about the present from that, the moral about the present from that isn't go around saying, stop being so racist. The moral about the present is to say, look, however you feel about black people, you're never going to get this thing unless you organize a bunch of black people. Right. You know, I, and I, I mean, so much of current anti-racism is then driven also by this just desire for a kind of moral superiority. Right. And, you know, that, so, you know, we all know there are lots and lots of people like who want to feel morally superior. I mean, we all sort of want to feel morally superior. And, you know, God gives us people like, again, I blame you, Kendi and D'Angelo, so we can feel morally superior. You know, it's not, I mean, again, it's a low fucking bar. Right. But nonetheless, 
we can say, I'm be kind of a slime ball, but at least I'm not Robin DiAngelo. <laughs> so fine, that's good. Um, and that serves a purpose. But I think the question of, I mean, there's nothing that a certain kind of person on the left, I mean, Rediger has made an entire career out of this, about people's attachment, you know, to their whiteness. Right. So again, the point isn't just to deny it. I mean, the point Adolf made before is exactly right, not to be transcontextual about it, to, to think about the moments in which it made sense to people to become more attached to their whiteness. And then think about the ways that we might get them to realize that being more attached to their whiteness didn't do them any good. Instead of saying, well, they're just these damn racists, so we just got to do whatever. Now, it doesn't mean there are horrible racists whom all of us want to reject in various ways, but it means that actually you're never going to get anywhere by basically treating the, you know, the entire white working class as if you can write them off because of their racism. Um, and and that's kind of obvious, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not transcontextually, just in our current context, it's completely obvious that actually dividing the world into the racist and the anti-racist has not been good for left politics since look around us. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, I got like three really short anecdotes and a declaration about this this, this question, right? Um, to, well, one of the anecdotes comes out of my teaching for the last seven or eight years I was teaching. Uh, and it speaks like uh, precisely to Walter's quest or point about um, uh, the quest for moral superiority. Because no matter what course I was teaching, I'd find a way to make it fit urban politics or whatever. Um, I would always find a way to to bring up uh, the fights over Chinese exclusion in California in the last quarter of the 19th century. Because, uh, you know, most of the kids at Penn would have heard something about it, maybe up right somewhere. But but I laid it out to them this way. All right, so Stanford and the other barons, right, uh, um, uh, I mean, the rail barons and the agricultural barons, um, announced publicly, right, that they intended to import Chinese workers to displace what were then called the Native American workers, what a difference time makes and how these names get assigned. Um, because for racial reasons, the Chinese could live for less and were more tractable and docile. Unsurprisingly, the reaction from the Native American workers was to fight for Chinese exclusion, right? And to argue that because of the racial characteristics that made them attractive to the employers, they were fundamentally unassimilable, right? So since Andrew Saxton, right, uh, I mean, this story has been told, but it's been told in a way that lets Stanford and robber barons off, off the hook, right? Because they're the ones who established the terms of the argument. And it's the white workers, right, uh, for whom it's not even clear how salient white was as, as, as an understanding of who they were, prior to this conflict, you know what I mean? Uh, and that's kind of a hint at the declaration that's coming at the end of this. So I asked students, I said, okay, so if you were one of these Native American workers in 1870 and had this issue confront you, what would your position be? All right, so that's, so, so that's anecdote I mean, number one. Anecdote number two was a few years ago, I was on a panel at the Southern Historical Association and, I, and, and a part of my talk, um, I made a, a reference to uh, you know, the defeat of populism at the end of the 19th century. 
And when the panel was over, and I was pretty clear about you know the violence and all that, when the panel was over, a woman comes up to me, who I assume was some sort of historian, um, and and says to me, "Well, but you know that the populist uprising was defeated because white workers were more committed to their whiteness than to the populist agenda." And I said to her, "Well, yeah, there was that, and there was also you know suppression and violence and murder." and ballot theft and and a couple of other items in a litany to which she said, yeah, well, there was that too, but it was really like their commitment to white supremacy. Okay. Um, and the third anecdote is kind of related more, more to the second one. Um, it, you know, um, it, you know, down here, down here in South, South Louisiana, uh, there was a concerted um, effort you know, to import workers from the extreme Northeast coast of Africa. That is Sicily. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, um, you know, to work in the cane fields principally, where it was understood that that they were more tractable and could outcompete blacks. And as had been the case with the Delta Chinese up in the Mississippi Delta region, a little farther north, in the 1860s and 1870s, in the first generation, you know, the new migrants lived among, worked with, co- cohabited with, partnered and and or I mean reproduced with the blacks who were there already, which only makes sense because they were all there in the same slice of the society, right? Of I mean the social structure. Well actually you've been here for a little while and start to figure out the stakes of being white or at least not black in late 19th century uh, I mean Louisiana, Mississippi and Arkansas, then understandably you're going to do whatever you can to, you know, to avoid being classified as black, right? And 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 actually, the first um, test of Plessy versus Ferguson as applied to education was um, Gong Lum v. Rice, which was a Mississippi case, 1927, I think, um, in which um, the descendant of one of the Delta Chinese immigrants uh, sued to uh, permit his daughter to go to the white school in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, um, and made, you know, arguments drawing on the race science of the day that Chinese were for both cultural and um, um, craniometric uh, uh, reasons uh, um, between blacks and whites, but they were closer to whites than they were to blacks. Um, Gong Lam lost the case, but he's so... So thoroughly persuaded the Jackson City fathers that 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 they let his daughter go to the white school on a download. But the point so so the point is that this shit is not a matter so much of being committed to whiteness, but here comes the declaration, which is that there was no whiteness to be committed to, right, really, till the end of the nineteenth century. Uh and it got shaped um it and through contestation. Uh, between then and 1924, and the New Deal, right? Uh, and 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 for people who are interested in a critical examination of the whole whiteness thing and its debates, uh, there's a um, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's a special issue of Illwich, uh, the International Labor and Working Class Class History Journal. I think around 2002, maybe I'm not sure. Um, it's called Whiteness and the Historian's Imagination, which examines, which is a series of 
critical critical reflections on and examinations of 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 the limits of the category of whiteness uh, for 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 making sense out of American history, and one of them fundamentally is that it's um, an, it's a transhistoric category. Whiteness is whiteness; it doesn't vary in time and place. The meanings never change, and it's moreover, um, you know, kind of the um, kind of like um, um, uh, the doppelganger of of new blackness in the sense that people pursue it you can't find it you try to get there well if it's always uh, beyond reach uh, so yeah bullshit that's a word i was thinking <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a good, good thing to end on great word to end on yeah yeah i think that's the perfect note to end on um so Maybe i want to thank blackness is too <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like the beginning of a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Walter, your next project. Why all this shit is bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, Well, thanks to all of our viewers for watching. And of course, thank you to Walter and Adolf. Um, I thought this was a great conversation. Again, the word bullshit, perfect note to end on. Um, And we will see you all next week. Good night. All right, guys. Take care.